Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us at the intersection of policy, politics, and demographics. Today's topic, welcome to the jungle, the war for Washington. As we have discussed in previous episodes of the Political Risk Brief, there are a variety of trends that are coming together to really increase the importance of politics to the economy in the United States. And we have observed in recent months and years, and we see increasingly corporate America engaging Washington as the most decisive venue of business-to-business competition. And if we project these trends forward and they persist as we expect, it is going to make corporate America much more engaged in Washington, and it is going to change not only how Washington operates, but the scale of engagement in Washington, D.C., with businesses and related entities taking an ever more prominent role. I want to welcome my co-host, as always, Johnny Fluger. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. And Jeremy Furchcott. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be here. So this is a topic that we have tracked for some time. And before we get into the nitty-gritty, I think it's useful for our audience to step back and describe some of the forces that seem inexorably to be pushing corporate America into greater and greater engagement of the political system. I want to start with some basic statistics that I think frame the discussion. One is if we look since 1955 at two important proxies for the size and scope of government, they would be pages in the Federal Register and federal spending. And I'll just take the first. So since about 1955, by our count, as I recall, there's been something like a 600% increase in pages in the Federal Register. And there's also been an increase in federal spending, whereas I think in 1955, it was approximately, and these are rough numbers, 16% of GDP. It is today, I think, around 21% of GDP. And that's a meaningful increase from the baseline year of 1955. So I think both are very important to understanding the growth of government as a force in the economy. And I would say that those numbers actually understate the case because regulations on top of regulations have an effect even greater than the numbers might suggest. To begin, Johnny, I'd like to turn to you. Give the audience a sense of practically what do these increases mean and why, beyond the obvious, do they force companies to think about Washington, D.C. as a competitive venue, not just simply a governmental one? The mantra that corporate decision makers always come back to is certainty, the desire to achieve certainty so that planning can be executed, so that the numbers in the spreadsheet prove accurate. And I think the pages in the Federal Register offer an element of uncertainty, an element of bureaucratic discretion that companies in particular attempt to master. They want to understand how are their regulators going to interpret things such that their business is going to be affected. There's a lot of maneuverability around what people conventionally might consider black-letter law. Without boring our listeners with another discussion of government procurement, I think the compounding of regulations means increased compliance structures throughout corporate America. There is a lot of law and stuff that might not be law but is kind of law to comply with. And there's a lot of discretion given to regulators to enforce those regulations. And if you are not in Washington, if you are not collecting political intelligence, so to speak, 
you're going to be caught flat-footed. You're going to be surprised. And I think that's one of the things that corporate executives are looking to solve for by being engaged here, just as companies that sell to the government don't want to be surprised when their largest competitor gets an other transaction award for billions of dollars. So too do many companies not want to be surprised when a regulation that sits on top of their business suddenly gets interpreted in a new light by a regulator. John, are you suggesting there are people in the economy who do something other than gather political intelligence, that they're, they're actual real jobs in the real economy? Are you, are you Surprisingly, most days I, I could not believe such a claim, but yes. So I also should give a point of clarification, which is my numbers on GDP, that was 1955 through 2019, which is pre-COVID. So increase of 16% of GDP to 21% of GDP, that is federal spending as a percentage of GDP. I would note that if you count COVID, that number was 31% of GDP. So I'm taking the pre-COVID number, so no one should think that I'm overstating the case. One statistic that also bears this out, for which we don't actually have a statistic, is the number of public companies that have a former government official on their board of directors. We've scoped various ways of assessing this historically. It's not so easy because there's a lot more corporate disclosure today than there was in 1955, and a lot of personalities who might have been government officials or retired military officers are not known to us in the way that they were known to the average newspaper reader in in 1955. But if you go through the Fortune 100 as an example, it is rare to find a company that does not have a former government official occupying what I'll call the government seat or the ex-regulator seat on its board. Jeremy, in past discussions and political risk briefs as well as episodes of the podcast, you have discussed companies' differentiation dilemma. Why don't you walk our audience through what that means and the implications for the conversation today? The idea is that as the economy becomes increasingly regulated, companies are being told by government what they can and cannot do. And so if you imagine several companies competing against one another, it becomes more difficult to compete on products and service if those products and services are increasingly being constrained by government regulation. So the theory is that when companies can compete less on product and service differentiation, then competing on political differentiation becomes increasingly important. And an example is the auto industry where most major automakers sell essentially the same vehicle. There are some exceptions, and certain automakers may have a convertible here or there or may have a particularly powerful SUV or pickup truck. But for average cars that most people might expect to buy, a midsize sedan or a compact crossover, midsize crossover, most of those vehicles are pretty standardized. And When products become more standardized, especially if they're standardized because of government regulation, then political competition between these companies becomes increasingly important. And the implication of that, Jeremy, is that in such an environment, the place where a company can differentiate is in its government relations strategy, where they can pursue a lot of creativity if they want to. It's largely undisclosed in most cases, with a few exceptions, but by and large undisclosed. And they can gain a real competitive advantage versus product innovation. Absolutely. So as we observe these forces driving greater political engagement by corporations of Washington, D.C., there is an example that we think sets the pace for what the future will hold, and that is Amazon and Amazon's very particular approach to 
public affairs, as the term is known or commonly known as government relations. And Amazon is pursuing a level and velocity of engagement that already has begun to and increasingly likely will ignite a broader influence arms race among the Fortune 100. And so Amazon, for reasons that we think are deeply embedded in its core strategy, understands the importance of Washington and this idea of differentiation, its ability to deploy resources to gain competitive advantage in a way that others are not inclined to do. Johnny, I would like you to walk through how this manifests itself. Why do we point to Amazon as a prime mover, so to speak, when it comes to public affairs? What do we see in them that suggests a key force that will catalyze so much of the environment in Washington going forward? Amazon is unique in the number of ways in which it resources government relations. I would say, first, by the conventional measure of lobbying spend, and lobbying is only a fraction of overall public affairs activity, Amazon is by far the biggest spender among companies as of the latest quarterly numbers that emerged last week. And Amazon, as an example, is spending more money on lobbying than the AARP. So that's a very straightforward and, in a certain sense, unsatisfying answer. But then as you look more broadly, you see Amazon donating to, by our count, 465 different third-party groups in 2021. These are the disclosed donations that Amazon has made transparent in its annual political engagement report. Now, Johnny, for people who did not grow up in Chevy Chase or Bethesda or Potomac, explain what you mean by third-party group. Third-party group would be think tanks, issue advocacy organizations, chambers of commerce, such as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or a state, regional, or local chamber of commerce. It's the umbrella category referring to those groups as well as groups to a certain degree engaged in direct political advocacy like the Republican Governors Association Democratic Governors Association. That whole constellation of groups that are tax-exempt, that's what we mean by third-party groups. And Johnny, we don't have data on this, but what's your estimate as to how many different third-party groups the average Fortune 50 company is providing? Anecdotally, if you go through the Fortune 50, 1 through 50, I think you'd see something in the neighborhood of 50 third-party groups on an annual basis. And there's quite a bit of attrition year to year. And what's remarkable about the growth in Amazon's third-party giving is it has compounded basically year to year. There's been very little drop-off of groups from year to year. There's been some, but every year the number of groups has grown substantially. And Amazon is only disclosing donations for which it is funding to the tune of $10,000 or more. There's a second layer to the third-party spending, which is the large number of state and local groups that Amazon is funding. So most Fortune 50 companies, Jeremy, to your question, I think, overwhelmingly disclose giving to national organizations or 
to the degree that the organizations are involved in global issues, they are related to international trade or tax policy, and certainly Amazon is funding those. But what's remarkable is the increase in giving to state and local organizations, such as chambers of commerce in places like Arizona or Oklahoma. And by our number crunching, there were 257 such donations in 2021. That's unheard of, I think, in the rest of the Fortune 50 and certainly Fortune 100. And I should add, Jonathan, that this 465 number that I keep on repeating, that number was 47 in 2015 when Amazon began to disclose its grantees in this what's now called political engagement report. It's had a variety of names over the years, but there were only 47 entities. So in seven years, the number of entities receiving funding from Amazon has grown tenfold. I don't think we've ever seen anything like it before. So, Johnny, you've described one dimension of Amazon's government relations engagement. That's third-party spending. Mm-hmm. What is the next facet you would highlight? Another area, Jonathan, would be recruitment of former government officials and military officers. And certainly, Amazon has had very strong programs to hire veterans. And that's a part of what I'm going to describe. Amazon, in the last, say, five years, has hired thousands of former federal regulators, federal officials, military officers, both main Amazon, the e-commerce side of Amazon, as well as the cloud computing arm, Amazon Web Services. And I think no other company, even the defense contractors, even the primes, have hired former government officials at the same scale that Amazon has. So to give the audience a specific sense, during the last five years, Amazon overall has hired something like 3,000-plus individuals out of government to join the company, and they're recruiting out of the mid- and senior levels of the government. This is not recruiting junior-level people or low-level enlisted ranks of the military. These are mid- and senior-level people into the company, and that number we think is you know 3,000-plus. Yes, I think that's a fair estimate. And our rough sense is in terms of order of magnitude, that is a significantly greater number than would be typical for any other company let's say outside defense contractors, specifically in the Fortune 100 or the Fortune 50? I think like with the political engagement, it's probably on the order of 10 times greater than other large recruiters of government officials. That would be my instinct. So, Johnny, we've covered now two different dimensions, right? Third-party spending and recruitment out of government. Let's move to the third dimension of Amazon's scaled engagement of government, which is their very formidable public policy organization. Right. So we discussed lobbying spend that includes both internal full-time employees and external contract lobbyists. What's remarkable, once again, is the size of the internal full-time employee organization that directs all of these contract lobbyists. Our research suggests that there are, at this point, nearly 600 Amazon full-time employees in the United States who are working on public affairs. Almost all of those people are working on public policy previously under President Obama's spokesman, Jay Carney, who led that division for many years until recently. But the number is larger than that because if you 
look at other categories of activity that are adjacent to government relations, like certain corporate social responsibility efforts or elements of legal that interface with government regulators, you're getting to a number close to 600. Again, this is a incredibly large number relative to anything we've ever seen before. So I want to make sure that the listener understands what you're saying, Johnny. So within Amazon, which encompasses, of course, also AWS, within their function that houses the public affairs slash government relations function, they have now something on the order of 600 full-time employees. Yes. And I think what we know from our experience, and I think this is pretty reliable, that there are very sophisticated, highly regulated companies in the Fortune 50 who might have 40 or 50 full-time employees in the similarly defined function. This is, again, at least one order of magnitude greater. So again, we see across another dimension this 10x scaling of engagement with government. And it gives Amazon, I would think, certain advantages from an advocacy perspective. So many Fortune 100 companies have, as an example, personnel who cover state capitals. One day they're in Annapolis, the next day they're in Olympia, Washington, on the third day they're in Austin, Texas. So Amazon has those people, but in addition to those people, it has now personnel who cover big metropolitan areas. There are government relations personnel who are dedicated to covering Amazon's interests in Dallas, Texas, and in New York City, and in Boston, and in Denver, and in Miami. There is no state government in Miami, but there are now multiple individuals whom Amazon has hired to address policy risk to its business interests in South Florida. That is a capability based on our experience that no other company in America has. So what we see again in this dimension is Amazon identifying this opportunity to gain competitive advantage, looking at their expected return on investment, and really surging their engagement. So, Johnny, we've gone through third-party spending. We've talked about recruitment out of government. We've talked about Amazon's public policy organization and its FTEs in that organization. Why don't you just go through the fourth area that we think quite a bit about, which is what we call corporate soft power? Yeah, and this includes a number of different things. I would say most notably executive engagement. When you look at the built environment of Washington now, a few things stand out. One would be the presence of this massive second corporate headquarters for Amazon HQ2, which is practically on top of the Pentagon, across a highway in Arlington. And then when you look at the built environment in Northwest DC, you see the former textile museum where I spent, you know, many a lovely weekend day enjoying abstruse antiquarian exhibits. That's now Jeff Bezos's personal residence. And then you go downtown and you see that the Washington Post is no longer in the building it was in for many years, which is now the headquarters of Fannie Mae. The building was knocked down and a new building was built, but it is a little bit over downtown and it's owned by Jeff Bezos. So you see this high degree of executive engagement with Washington placing business operations in Washington and acquiring a certain prominence in the cultural environment through the purchase of a local institution. 
which is also a national institution like the Washington Post. And there are other examples as well, Jonathan, in this category of soft power. A variety of Amazon board members got together and donated to the Smithsonian this sort of modernist portrait of Jeff Bezos, which is now hanging in the Smithsonian. And that's another example of a level of executive engagement by Jeff Bezos himself that I think is not the trend among Fortune 100 CEOs. A lot of Fortune 100 CEOs and founders want to be as far away from Washington as possible on their vacations, preferably in Montana, like the line in the hunt for Red October. But for whatever reason, Amazon kind of uniquely has established itself here. And if you go back, one of the most interesting actions that Jeff Bezos undertook before he owned the Washington Post was an investment in Living Social, which was at the time this very prominent daily deals company that was started by the son-in-law of Don Graham, the owner of the Washington Post, the then CEO of the Washington Post Company. And that was the beginning, it seems, of Jeff Bezos's foray into elite society in Washington. And he's been on a tear since. And if you look at other Amazon executives, such as current CEO Andy Jassy, he was on the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. And there are plenty of other examples we can point to. So it seems from the very top of Amazon, a signal has been sent. You need to engage with Washington. I don't think it has existed for the entire duration of the company, for the entire time the company has been operational. But certainly since about 10 years ago and the beginning of these very large AWS cloud computing contracts, this has clearly been a priority for the company. And if we pull back and just think about this area of soft power and what it means, Amazon has deployed a headquarters. They've established a major footprint in the nation's capital or adjacent to the nation's capital. They have opened what is the equivalent of an embassy. The former textile museum, which now is Bezos' private residence, is got the scale and grandeur of an embassy. And they've hung what is the equivalent of a presidential portrait of the company founder in the Smithsonian, as well as purchasing arguably the most important communications vehicle news outlet in the D.C. metropolitan region. So if that doesn't convey a scale level of engagement, I'm not sure what would. But those things, I think, are quite significant. And there's also the Amazon Housing Equity Fund, which is lending money at lower rates of interest, relatively speaking, to real estate developers to build more multifamily housing in the Washington area, as well as Nashville and Seattle and other places where the company operates. So they are also a major force in real estate development. So when you take all of this together and you think of it as a comprehensive approach to government, I think it's safe to say that this is a provocation to competitors and beyond throughout the Fortune 100, that Amazon is establishing a position and a precedent that we believe will force competitors to keep pace. It's almost a nation that deploys a new weapon system that demands a response from a near competitor. There is a missile gap right now, and companies quite logically are going to try to catch up. And I think an example where we, we've we seen this is in the battle between Blue Origin, which is not Amazon, but also owned by Jeff Bezos, and SpaceX, which is owned by Elon Musk. There's been a lot of fanfare and rancor 
related to that competition. I think in part because of the steps that Jeff Bezos himself has taken to become part of the establishment here in Washington and SpaceX and other competitors to Blue Origin not wanting to miss out. So the implications of this will be as companies respond and begin, even if modestly, to expand their own capabilities in one or more of the sub-areas we've described, that will have a cascading or a multiplier effect. And it will not take that many companies increasing their engagement budgets by that much to begin to bump into one another and accelerate the cycle, accelerate the trend. And so in this way, we think of Amazon as being a prime mover, as being a spark that is already igniting this competition, which we expect to intensify in coming years, and that will have real implications. And I'd like to sort of turn to this part of the episode to talk about those implications. Jeremy, as our resident geostrategist, someone thinks a lot about competition, both in the nation-state context as well as in the corporate context, what do you think are the most important consequences of this war for Washington that will unfold? Well, Jonathan, I think that most companies are not going to be able to keep pace with Amazon. I don't think that there are many companies that are going to be able to start spending 10x on whether it's their third-party spending or their public affairs FTEs or any other metric of their DC presence. There may be a few companies that try to go to 2x or 3x where they're at currently, but I don't think that much of the Fortune 50 is going to try to keep pace with Amazon. Nonetheless, even if most of the Fortune 50 decides that they're going to, say, double their spending, I think that's a much more plausible scenario than companies trying to keep pace with Amazon. That would still be a tremendous infusion of political activity in D.C. There are other possible scenarios to think about. There are companies that may decide that they cannot increase their spending for whatever reason. They're not even going to try. They're going to try to instead adjust their strategy. And so what may change is not the actual headcount in D.C. or the amount of spending in D.C., but how that headcount is used and to what purposes the spending goes to. So it could be that over the next few years, companies start changing their strategies because they realize that they are so far from being able to match Amazon scale in D.C. And so you could end up with very asymmetric competition in D.C. If you think about geopolitical competition, you have certain great powers, and most countries in the world are not great powers. Most countries in the world are not the United States or, say, the Soviet Union 50 years ago or China as it's rising. You have a lot more companies that are, say, South Korea or the Netherlands or France or Italy or even Japan Uh, There aren't that many U.S.-scale countries. And I think that's where things start getting very interesting because those smaller to medium-sized players can form very interesting coalitions. They can seek alliances with the great powers. They can seek concessions from those great powers. If you look at how much the United States spends on its alliances and providing military support for its alliances, there are just a lot of very interesting patterns that could start becoming visible in public affairs in D.C. over the next decade. I think that's exactly right, Jeremy. And the other point we probably should explore is that, and this is well-established, I'm sure, in the social science, but 
networks, social networks, networks of individual relationships can only bear so many contact points between and among nodes in the network. And we see in Washington that there are limitations on how influence is exercised. A person will only take so many meetings a day. A person will only conduct so many meetings a day. There's only so much information somebody will absorb. So we do see evidence that there's a fixed number of people roughly in the system who are either exercising influence or having influence exercised on them. And so that suggests to me, and I would argue, that the degree of increased investment in Washington you're describing, let's say this two to five X range, could have a disproportionate impact on the wealth and power of the town because, again, there are these fixed limits, there are these boundaries on what's possible. One example of this would be lobbyists. So what we've seen, and these are rough numbers over the past decade plus, is the number of lobbyists has remained somewhat constant at around 12,000 registered lobbyists. There was a period where it went up and then a bunch of people deregistered for reasons we could talk about. But again, the number of lobbyists has held roughly constant at 12,000. And even lobbying spend for some time in recent years has held constant. Again, this is formal lobbying disclosed under the Lobbying Disclosure Act at around $3 billion total per annum. So that is fascinating to see that, again, there are limitations that seem to be in the system. And so, again, within those limits, more money, I think, will have some very interesting impacts. Yeah, I think that limitation is very important. And at the risk of going a little bit off topic, there are proposals that we have heard to increase the size of Congress, increase the number of members of Congress. There are calls to increase the amount of budget that each member's office has available to it. So I think if there were to be an actual increase in number of people working on Capitol Hill, then you could end up with a significantly larger number of lobbies. But assuming that the status quo remains, that the Congress looks roughly like it does today in 10 years, then I think that bounded aspect of lobbying you're pointing to, Jonathan, is very important. And I would not be surprised to see Washington as a community very much embrace restrictions on former members of Congress and former administration officials lobbying. That would be a very clever device to limit the supply of lobbyists and to direct the resources to the perennial occupants of the town as opposed to perceived interlopers. So I would watch that proposal carefully. Johnny, I'd like you to speak to one implication we think a lot about in how this dynamic overall impacts CEOs and how CEOs perceive their role with respect to Washington. I think many CEOs have been trained to think of themselves as operators and deal makers. And you can say this is the effect of business school culture, the effect of private equity culture. I think relatively few think of themselves as emissaries or diplomats on behalf of their company to the political establishment here in Washington. Increasingly, I think we have found that companies that have a CEO who thinks of himself or herself as an emissary, they end up having disproportionate influence on the conversation. If they see themselves as having things to say to policymakers, I think the policymakers will react in kind, will reciprocate, and have a kind of feeling of affection for the company. As long as the company isn't doing something totally goofy or beyond the realm of credibility, I think a lot of policymakers, certainly congressional staff, want to have 
best in class, the newest, latest, greatest information. And companies, a lot of times, especially those dealing with consumers or having interesting supply chains, have that information. And if a CEO can provide that information, I think the better off the company will be. And I would say, as we look at our experience recently and over the years, the one thing for CEOs to appreciate is it may be wonderful that you have a bias to focus on the business and to build a better car, make the better burger, whatever it might be, and to have a certain natural disdain for Washington. I think that's actually healthy. But every CEO should keep in mind that even though you might not be interested in Washington, Washington is probably interested in you. And your average staffer of the sort who's going to make the regulatory enforcement decision that could affect your business as a mental model, is used to thinking of themselves as a staff or serving a principal. So they see institutions as staffers serving principals. So that means they want to have their principal interact with the company's principal. Johnny, to your point, even within the Fortune 100, we all know, everyone knows who's listening, there are a small number of what we would call corporate empires, the really big sprawling companies that dominate various sectors. And that number of corporate empires, you could argue, is in the half dozen to at most one dozen firms. But then when you go beyond that, there's this whole range of what we call small and medium powers. Those people who are not corporate empires, they're substantial companies, they have great expertise, they offer great value, but they on their own are not going to be contesting one or more of the corporate empires for influence in policymaking. So the question is, what do they do? And they're going to have, I would say, in Jeremy, you described this earlier, a very complicated series of decisions to confront in coming years. Where do they forge alliances with one or more corporate empires? Which enemies are they willing to accept as a result of making those alliances? How will they manage being, to use the metaphor, a buffer state between two competing corporate empires. That is going to be a very, very complicated set of decisions for companies that themselves are not positioned, don't have the scale to engage conflicts on their own directly, but have to figure out very creative ways of surviving and thriving. And you already see this dynamic starting to play out where some of the corporate empires, as their business models have expanded into other sectors, incumbent companies in those sectors have found themselves dealing with new trade associations or coalitions, government affairs staffers from this outside corporate empire company. And so there are companies that I think have found ways to use this to their benefit, where all of a sudden there is a very well-resourced corporate empire that is pursuing a certain advocacy objective that a more medium-sized incumbent company can benefit from. So the competition in D.C. between various corporate powers really has the potential to help many companies achieve their objectives if they can figure out how to align themselves in this competition so that their objectives end up getting pursued by powers greater than they are. So, Jeremy, as the bicyclist among us, this would be sort of a drafting strategy. Exactly. Do I have that right? Exactly. You shouldn't always be the one working in the wind. I will note that if we think about some of the parochial effects of the trends we're discussing, I would expect that real estate in the Washington area, especially luxury real estate, will do exceptionally well in the coming years. This is not investment advice. Yeah, this is not investment advice. This is just my own individual amateurish prediction. But I think luxury real estate will do very, very well. 
I also think that high-end restaurants will do exceedingly well in the Washington, D.C. area. And I also want to say that I think that services to high-income households, anything that saves high-income households time, effort, increases convenience, I think very much in sort of an L.A., California style, more of that will come to Washington and be prominent in Washington. Another data point that gets to what you're saying, Jonathan, is that when the Graham family of the Washington Post company, now Graham Holdings, sold the Washington Post to Jeff Bezos, what did they do with the money? Restaurants. Well, yes. They took some of the money and they purchased Clyde's Restaurant Group, which owns Old Ebbett Grill and the Hamilton. Among other locations around town. Yes, yes. And they purchased Lexus of Rockville and I think at least one other car dealership in the suburbs. They should have purchased a car dealership in Crystal City. Yeah, it would have become even more valuable as real estate. So there is something to the fact that the smart money, so to speak, who flipped the newspaper, which was the great asset of the 70s and 80s and early 90s, to Jeff Bezos, took the money and invested in lifestyle properties, basically, in the Washington area. That's a strong bet. And I also don't think it's a coincidence that two significant media properties, Axios and Politico, also recently had sales where they did quite well. And so there's really an appetite for those kinds of assets. So there seems to be this emerging increase in spending and recognition of Washington as a higher and higher value market. So those are the key trends that we see in this war for Washington. As we say, welcome to the jungle. Things are going to get a lot more intense as we've discussed today. And these are going to be trends worth following very closely in coming years. I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us, as always, and I hope you will tune in to a future episode of The Political Risk Brief. 